الجزيرة بودكاست. Hi, Malika Bilal here, and I've got some news. The take is going daily on Monday, May 1st. Every day, Monday to Friday, you'll get the latest from our show, the stories behind the headlines, and the news you didn't know you were missing. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you on Monday. Until then, here's Natasha Del Toro. The Fort Mojave Indian Reservation is near the Colorado River, the mighty river of the western United States. Nora McDowell grew up there, and she knows what it's like to lose something precious. There's mainly a lot of cottonwood trees, a lot of mesquite trees that I remember. And the Colorado River just flowed wherever it wanted to for more than 2,000 kilometers. We were used to that natural flow of the river, the natural order. Then, in the 1930s, the U.S. government built the Hoover Dam. This, the world's largest power plant, is capable of generating 1,835,000 horsepower of electrical energy. When operating at a and then downstream, there was another dam. The Parker Dam and the Hoover Dam created a backlog of the water and the flow of it changed, and then they channelized our river. There were multiple dams built without consulting the native people who live there. The dams changed the course of the river, and that changed everything. Where it comes, we're flooded, and they lost all their fields, all their crops. Their homes were totally gone, and they were devastated. When it comes to water in the United States, for Native Americans, it's been a story of theft and exclusion. And today, that story shifted from floods to drought, the worst in a thousand years. Now, the federal government is considering across-the-board cuts to the water allotted to each state, as well as tribal nations. And Native people are afraid they may be left behind, again. So what happens next in the West? I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Jillian Kessler Demore. I'm a reporter and editor with Al Jazeera English Online. And earlier this year, Jillian spent some time traveling along the Colorado River. Now, if you imagine on a map, the river flows from north to south through Colorado, Utah, then on to Nevada, Arizona, and California, eventually spilling out into the Gulf of Mexico. So that's where she went, taking a close look at the water that's left and talking to the Native people who call its banks home. You were flying in a Cessna. You were also in a boat. Why don't you tell us what you've been up to and what you've been reporting on. Yeah, absolutely. My colleague, Megan O'Toole, and I traveled for about two weeks through the Colorado River Basin. We took planes, trains, automobiles through this region. <laughs> and we took a flight over Lake Powell. We took a boat through Antelope Canyon. We traveled from southwestern Colorado through Navajo Nation territory, down through Arizona, then back up west. And our trip culminated at Lake Mead in Nevada. So busy stretch of travel and reporting. 
What an adventure. <laughs> Absolutely. And for people who are not familiar with that part of the United States, maybe you can describe for me a little bit more about what this area looks like. Give me the lay of the land that you saw. So, I mean, it's a very diverse area. There are seven U.S. states in the Colorado River Basin. We were there in February, so there was actually a lot of snow this year. They've had, you know, snow, so which is good news. But at the same time, it's clear that there is a major problem, a major crisis happening on the river. Hitting this record low really sounded the alarm for a lot of people, given just the drought conditions, which have really been made worse by climate change. It's very, it's very troubling to, to think of. I mean, there's just so much at stake there. And I saw some photos that you took that show the line where the water used to be, but it's kind of hard from the photo to tell the scale of it. You got to see it up close. Is the distance from the line to where the water is now, is that the height of a human or is it like a two-story building? For the watermark, it's hard to say just because we were on the river itself, but essentially on the boat, you can kind of see the watermarks are definitely above my head when we're on the boat, so you see that on the side. And you said you also went to Lake Mead. Tell me about that part of the journey. Lake Mead is the largest reservoir in the United States. There is hydroelectric power, you know, at the Hoover Dam. So when we talk about the Colorado River crisis, this is where we're measuring and seeing just how important this river is in, you know, giving not only drinking water to more than 40 million people across the American West, but also providing um, electricity uh, and feeding agriculture as well. Gotcha. Wow. And this is a place then that when the water goes down, you're talking about hydropower. This is a, a really a, a crisis. Absolutely. There's What the experts are saying is there is a fear that this could reach a really a catastrophic point that's known as Deadpool. And so what that means is that the water would really cease flowing through the system. And as you just said, that would spell disaster for tens of millions of people. It's a really interesting and obviously like a very difficult time. The Western U.S. is going through its worst drought in over 1,200 years. I mean, that's such a long time that many people say it's not even a drought anymore, that this is just the way it is now. What does that look like then for people like Nora, who we heard at the beginning of this episode? There's a sense of really alarm for so many people like Nora and other community members that we spoke to. There's this really pressing need to address this crisis, really, on the Colorado River. This is our home. This is what Creator gave us. He created the river in our name. Ahamakav means people of the river, or by the river, of the river. The tribe has roughly around 1,400 tribal members, and um, we pretty much farm a lot of the land, uh, probably roughly around 15,000 acres. We grow alfalfa, wheat, grass seed. We did some cotton. It's just so hard anymore to grow these things without an adequate source of water. You know, for so many people in the basin, the prospect of water cuts is a very real possibility. And also for the indigenous communities that we spoke to, and as you heard from Nora, water 
is it goes beyond just being a commodity. It's central to their culture and their way of life. The need to really address this and try to protect this is really front of mind for everyone. So what are Native American people in the Western United States doing to protect their water? That's after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As the Western United States faces its biggest drought in a millennia, Al Jazeera's Jillian kessler Demore has been traveling up and down the Colorado River, reporting on its water, or lack thereof, due to a massive drought that's plaguing the region. There are so many different stakeholders involved here. A vast majority of the water from the Colorado River goes to agriculture right now. We're talking about 70 to 80 percent. As this is happening, though, uh, Indigenous communities are really demanding to have their water rights recognized. That was really the focus of our reporting. This month, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration came up with possible cuts that it says reflect the input of states, tribes, and other local groups. Who will bear the brunt of the cuts is still unclear, but much of it goes back to a complicated history of water rights. There are 30 federally recognized Native American tribes in the basin. Each have their own history with water rights, each have their own priorities. And so while their priorities are very different, each community would say, really, I think that the priority here really is that they are heard and that they have a say and that their sovereignty really is respected. Let's talk about why, you know, and I know that this is a a really long story, but one place that we can start is 1922. Because that's when the United States divvied up the water around the Colorado River, and it was called the Colorado River Compact. The Colorado River Compact, the first interstate treaty of its kind to apportion water among states. Western states are allocated water under the terms of a 100-year-old treaty. Now, this plan was to equitably split up the water from the river between the states that made up the Western Basin. But the tribes were not part of that compact. So how did we get from there to where we are now? So as you said, Indigenous communities were excluded from that key document in 1922, the compact. Indigenous tribes and Mexico as well, important to also note, which is where the Colorado River ends. And so in the years since, Indigenous communities have had to really try to assert themselves through the legal process in the United States to get their water rights quantified community leaders that we spoke to during this reporting trip were very clear that, you know, they were an afterthought. So the tribes were not included in the 1922 compact, but the tribes argue the federal government has a responsibility to make sure that these tribal nations have the water that they need in order to live their lives. Is the federal government living up to its end of the bargain? Yeah, I think it depends who you ask. You'll see in the in the statements from the Biden administration as this drought has worsened, saying, yes, we are taking into account tribal nations. We are listening to their concerns. The tribes themselves are asserting, again, we need to be at the table. We need to be heard. And we know 
And this is what leaders are saying, is that they know how to be stewards of the water. They have done it since time immemorial. And so their input is not only necessary, but it's critical when we're talking about how to preserve the Colorado River. And based on the history that you're describing, it seems like there's probably an issue of trust there as well. So let's talk about some specific tribes. I want to focus on one of the rivers that you went to and the native community there. I know that one of the rivers you saw, the Gila River in Arizona, which is an offshoot of the Colorado River, had run dry. As you can see, this is the historic flow of the Gila River, what we call the Kudiakamo, which is the Old Man River. And that's Stephen Lewis, who's the governor of the Gila River Indian community. We trace our historic ties to the Huga. They were master canal builders and master agriculturalists. And the whole footprint of, of modern Phoenix is built upon their engineered canals. So, Jillian, I understand it's pretty complicated how it is that the Gila River effectively emptied out. But in some ways, it also tells a story of this community's right to water in the United States. Tell me about Stephen Lewis and meeting him and speaking to him there. I can hear from the tape that it was pretty windy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It was a pretty windy day in February. And we spoke with the governor at a site there in, in Gila River, where, as he's saying, the Gila River used to flow. It dried up due to diversions upstream. But the community spent decades fighting for its water rights. In a, a sad chapter of, of our history, of America's history, our water was stolen from us 150 years ago. And so that set us on a path to fight uh, this historic fight to, to regain our water rights, which culminated in 2004 in the Arizona Water Settlement Act, then was the largest water settlement in U.S. history. And so since then, they've been able to market their water. They've been able to launch projects to really kind of try to bring the water back. And, and essentially, that's, that's really what they've done. It was a desert. It was, you know, rocky desert. We brought the water back. Literally, it was, it was months. You started to see the plants, the plants that were asleep, started to germinate, started to, to grow again. It was almost like the land was healing itself right on the banks of the river. And with the plants, you saw the animals. We have almost, at this point, over 80 different species of, uh, of birds uh, that have come back, that come and, and migrate. We have indigenous desert beavers that have come, coyotes, bobcats. So this is just now, as you can see, the ecosystem here is fully formed now. To be there, uh, Governor Lewis said, you know, he could feel the spirit of his father. He could feel the spirit of his ancestors. And this is really a good example of how communities being able to fight for their rights and what that means today. It's incredible that Stephen got to see that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, kind of looking forward, the governor was talking about just the importance for the next generation of people there in Gila River to have that water there again and to really assert themselves and assert their rights within this critical moment of the crisis on the Colorado. Water is life. Uh, water is a trust responsibility uh, that should be upheld. Our, our water rights are sacred. 
uh, as we see it, as we see it. We have to continue on this path of negotiating, of looking at ways that if we can find a more sustainable path forward. So it sounds like there's just a lot to, that we can learn from the tribes and how they've been able to preserve the river and their respect for the river. Are there any indications that they are being listened to? It's a good question, you know, obviously not being privy to kind of the inner workings, of course, of all these negotiations. But in speaking to community members and various experts, there is a sense that Indigenous input is being listened to at least more so than it was in the past when really communities were altogether excluded from any decision. So there has been an improvement. Now, how much of an improvement, I think, depends who you would be asking. So right now, the federal government recently just put out kind of an analysis of what's on the table. And we're just waiting essentially for a decision from Washington here. You know, since 1922, water decisions have been made by consensus in the Western United States. It seems that a consensus is, has not been possible so far on how to address the drought. And so this would really be a historic decision if the federal government were to mandate cuts. And so we're essentially kind of in a holding pattern waiting to see what the federal government is going to decide. And hopefully there will be a decision uh, by the end of the summer. So it's a really critical moment in how we everywhere discuss how do we use natural resources and how do we respect Indigenous nations. Obviously, you know, without water, we can't live. So there's a lot of animals and crops and other considerations, day-to-day -day life. But then tell me about the spiritual connection to water. Absolutely. That was something that Nora McDowell in Fort Mojave really stressed as well. She was really talking about not looking at water as a commodity, but looking at water and looking at the Colorado River as a living, breathing thing, a, li a living, breathing entity that we need to respect. And so for her, when we talk about how do we, how does the region mitigate drought? How does the region deal with water cuts? She was really talking about a complete shift in the way that we view water and really treating it with respect and allowing the river to replenish itself, being central to that. Nobody owns it. You know, it is its own entity. It is its own spirit. It's alive, you know. But because we altered it and changed it to serve our needs, now we're living with the realities of what we did, you know, all those years. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Sonia Bagat, Nagin Oliai, Ashish Malhotra, Chloe K. Lee, Khaled Sultan, Miranda Lynn, and me, Natasha Del Toro. In for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Adam Abugad and Munera Aldasari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is our executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is our head of audio. And please check out the pictures and videos that Jillian and her colleague, Megan O'Toole, who co-reported the story, took. They have an amazing interactive story on Al Jazeera's site. We'll also have a link in the show notes and on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AJE Podcasts, and I'm at Endel Toro. We'll be back.